Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. The types of issues that we're covering are at the heart of much of the work that the RSA is doing today. Uh, work on everything from mental health in schools to mission-led schooling. And so we'd really love to hear some of your thoughts um, as we're navigating the social challenges that young people face as they go through school. And your perspective might be as a parent, a carer, a teacher or a student. We welcome all of those views. To offer us expert guidance through these challenges today, we're delighted to welcome our keynote speaker, uh, speaker, Rosalind Wiseman. She's an educator and an author who for many years has been dedicated to a single goal, to help communities shift the way that they think about young people's emotional well-being. Rosalind is the founder of the organisation Cultures of Dignity. She's the author of the curriculum Owning Up, Empowering Adolescents to Confront Social Cruelty, Bullying and Injustice and a multiple New York Times best-selling author whose titles include Queen Bees and Wannabes. That's the book that was the basis for the hit movie Mean Girls. As a leading thinker on teen culture, bullying, ethical leadership, and the use of social media, Rosalind is in constant dialogue and collaboration with educators, parents, children, and teenagers. She joins us today to share some of her latest thinking on the kinds of community cultures that we all need to play a role in building if we are to help our young people recognise their own innate dignity and self-worth and recognise that of others too. The format for today's session is that Rosalind's going to speak for around 20 minutes and afterwards I'm going to take advantage of my position as chair to ask her a few follow-up questions um, and then we're going to open up for all of your questions. Um, so there's a lot to get through, uh, so without further ado, let's get started. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Rosalind. Hello. I'm Rosalind Wiseman. And thank you for being here. I am a leading expert on social and emotional learning and on teenagers, on adolescents. And I never actually know if I'm doing my work right. As a thought leader, as a parent, as a teacher, I'm constantly asking myself these questions. What did young people learn from me today? Not just the content of what I taught, but the actual how did I, how did I interact with them? Did I show that I cared? Did I hold them accountable in the right way? Did I show them that their experiences matter? Did I use words that mean something to them or did I blow them off? These are the questions that I am constantly asking myself. And I love working with young people. I have been working with people between the ages of 10 to 18 for my entire career. I love working with young people, but it can be so incredibly hard. So this year, because I believe so strongly that the only way that I have the right to speak to people like you is if I'm actually in schools on a day-to-day -day basis. So I go to school. And this year I started working at the group of seventh graders. So they're 13, 12, 13, 14 years old. And from the moment that I walked into this school, it was a disaster, like truly a disaster. They were rude to me, they were rude to each other. Within moments, I actually started, it took me about five minutes before I actually looked at them and thought, I intensely dislike every one of you. <laughs> every one of you. I was like, you're just horrible people. And I love working with teenagers. And then one of them, a boy, raised his hand and he said, why are you here? And it was not a question. And I thought to myself, why am I here? Frankly, you should be giving me some kind of respect for the fact that I am walking through the door right now as your teacher, and I am willing to be with you people. But why was I, th why was I there? And then I thought, why do I have to prove myself to you? And then I thought again, why was I there? Well, the reason I was there and the reason that I am here is because we have completely lost a meaningful definition of respect. It's hurting all of us, and it is particularly hurting the, the, our interactions with young people. And so what happens is, is that adults are clinging to this word, and young people are skeptical at best, and sometimes openly defiant, as was the case with my seventh graders. So I'm gonna ask you all a question. How many of you all were raised to respect your elders? Can you raise your hands? 
okay, like all of us. It is a cultural value that actually crosses cultures with ethnicities, religion, where you come from. We were raised to respect our elders. Now I want you to think about an adult that when you were growing up, who was somebody that you respected? So I really want you to think about this. Who was an adult that you respected? Now, if you have this person in mind, I bet you that that person was somebody who not necessarily was successful, but somebody who actually treated others with dignity. So when you ask people, as I do, when you ask young people, as I do, what first comes to their mind when you say the word dignity, they actually don't know. When you ask them what comes to their mind, when you ask them about the word respect, here are some of the ones that they say to me most often. Respect is supposed to be earned, but it's usually imposed. Someone who has power over me. I have to obey them no matter how they treat me. If they don't respect me, then I don't have to respect them. And that last one tends to make adults really angry. But what makes young people really angry is being asked to respect someone when what we really, really mean is to obey them, no matter how, much the per how the person treats other people. So at best, it creates disengagement in school, and at worst, it creates rage. So the question is, why does respect mean such different things to adults and young people? Why does it seem that we've lost a sense of basic respect for each other? How do we get it back? Why don't we use the word dignity more often? And all of these questions are things that I will answer today. So you know this picture. You know this cliche. It takes a village to raise a child. And it does take a village to raise a child. But let's be clear also that the village is your school, where your children go to school, where you work, your community, where you have recreation. This is your village in all different kinds of ways. But the village only works for young people when we have sane, mature adults in the village. And the village can be really messy. We are having some really serious challenges in the village because we have collectively begun to believe the following. If you confront people to their face when you're angry with a problem, the situation will get worse. But you can confront them on social media and make snarky comments on your, social, on your favorite social media platform. That is something that we have begun to believe about our village. You can never tell other people's children when they are wrong, because it will get worse. Whatever it is, it will get worse. You have no right to be able to talk to other people's children when they're doing something wrong. You can't make mistakes, and if you do, people are going to assume the worst about you, your intentions, or your competencies. Parenting is all, has become, in the village, a constant comparison of yourself and your children, and you feel like you're losing out to other people. In our village, we often believe also that our right to express ourselves, again, usually on social media in an anonymous way, is more important than our right to treat others with consideration. And you have to show respect that you, to people that you actually really don't like, specifically because of the way that they treat people. Now, our children know all of this. They might have a hard time putting it to words, but they know all of this. And make no mistake, I think we would all agree that we need young people in our villages who want to be part of our village so they can grow up and like take care of us when we are old, right? We need competent, connected young people to take care of us. So the village is really important. And we've got to be able to fix, with these young people, we've got to be able to fix our local village and our global village. So we need them. So of course, some of these, these issues have always been around, right? There are people who have been comparing their children forever. So some of these things are evergreen. But there are some things that have gotten a little different that I want to highlight. So since 2000, uh, 2007, when smartphones came out, we have not only been fed videos of cute cats. So our social media is constantly showing people, showing us entertainment by embarrassment of other people. That is one thing that it is consistently doing for us and for our children. 
It is convincing us that we are never enough, never enough, and that our children are never enough, and there's this constant feeling of losing out, and that there's an invisible audience that is watching and commenting and judging us. Parenting has been incredibly impacted by this. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but parents who you know, have children are constantly putting up their images about children on their Facebook pages or on their Instagram accounts. And it's all about, it's if everybody is constantly getting along, you would think that everybody, every family who's on any kind of social media is doing awesomely. They are really, they've got the money to go on vacations, they're always getting along really well. Now, I don't know about you all, but the last time I went on a family vacation with my two children, I have uh, 15 and 18-year-old people in my house, the last time I went on a vacation, I don't know, I thought it was a huge success that I only wanted to kill my oldest, ch my oldest child once during the entire vacation. The year before was actually not so good. But you would think that everybody's getting along and children are constantly succeeding at everything. And that is making it really difficult too for kids because parents are saying these things to their children. Why aren't you doing this? I saw this on somebody else's Facebook page. So, the other thing that I think can be really funny and amazing to me is when parents actually quote from their children, have actual conversations of their children on their social media, as if what they've said is incredibly brilliant. So, and there is there one last thing, is that there was a study done in the UK that by the time a child was two years of age, parents were posting over a thousand pictures of their children. Our children are not that interesting. They might be interesting to us, but they are not that interesting to everybody else. So it is making us insane, insecure, and narcissistic. This is not good for our village. And at the same time, social media is also showing us in real time consistent experiences of people abusing power in small ways and large ways. But we can't just blame social media. We really can't. We have a crisis of adult bad role modeling in our real lives. And of course, not all adults are bad role models, but we need to admit that there's enough of them that are out there in our children's real lives that it makes it seem like there are, that we need to acknowledge the messiness of this village. So I want you to think of it from a young person's perspective. So we have coaches and parents who are having tantrums at games. We have some administrators and teachers some who are dismissing of young people or are abusing power themselves and children can't do anything about it. That's not everybody, but it is some. And what I also know, because we work so much with teachers, administrators, anybody who works with young people, is that the other part that's happening is that adults are seeing this happen. Parents are seeing this happen during competitive events. Coaches are. These are good people. Teachers are seeing this down, walking down the hallway, but they don't know what to do to address it. They don't know what to do to stop it. And when young people see adults not be able to do anything, they do not feel empowered to do things themselves. And yet, one of the things that we say to young people, especially in schools, is if you see bullying, if you see a problem, go tell an adult. But we don't acknowledge the messiness of what our young people see. If we don't see it, if we don't admit it, then our children are not going to come to us. We have no credibility. So on top of this, we also have a situation where if you work with young people, if you work with young people, you know that you are dealing with this generation with the most amount of anxiety and depression that any group of children has experienced. We know this, so I'm gonna give you just very short statistics on this from the United States and the UK. So in the United States, the, the US National Survey on Drug Use and Health, this is a conservative group, large study, 56% more teens experienced a major depressive episode in 2015 than in 2010. 46% more 15 to 19-year-olds committed suicide in 2015 than in 2007. In the United Kingdom, you also have a large national study, and what they were looking at and what they reported is that while other quote-unquote disorders flatlines, like ADHD and autism, anxiety changed and increased. 
So what we have in the UK is one in eight 15 to 19 year olds had an emotional disorder. One in six by the time they were 17 to 19 had an emotional disorder. And for girls, there was a doubling of amount for emotional disorders between 17 and 19. And of these emotional disorders in the UK, disproportionately, by far, the issue was anxiety. So the village is getting sicker. So all of this, I have to say, is hard to admit, right? It's the, and many of us feel like our villages and our worlds are falling apart. And we don't know what to do about it. And we have sometimes these sinking feelings of what can I do? There's nothing to do. But there is something to do. There really, really is. And so the first part is we have to acknowledge the challenge and be honest about the challenge. The second is what do we do concretely that makes this better, that begins to repair our villages and build our villages back again? So I want to reiterate, what are the stakes? The stakes are anxiety, and the stakes are young people not feeling that adults are credible so they can come to us for help. And that's incredibly important. So, what do we do? What do we do is we make it better. So when I said in the, in earlier that young people say, I'm not going to give you someone respect until I get respect from you, I'm going to reframe that for you. So what I believe is that adults are misinterpreting this. Because my experience is, is that, adult, that young people actually recognize that they don't necessarily want equal power. That is just not my experience. What my experience is, is that when young people say, I'm not going to give someone respect until I get respect, that this is what they really mean. Number one, that the adults recognize and know that their life is different for us than it is for young people. For example, we had privacy growing up, they do not. Number two, that we don't talk down to them, that just because they don't pay bills does not mean that their lives aren't complicated. That we, in fact, appreciate that their lives are complicated, even if we might not know exactly what those complications are. That when we see a young person coming to us, that we know, even if they're acting crazy, that there must be a good reason, not an excuse, but there must be a good reason for what they're doing. And if we can figure out what that good reason is, we can figure out how to get them engaged. Four, we have to listen to them without immediately giving them advice. That is very difficult for adults, because we go into fix-it mode. And number five, acknowledge the possibility that our young people have problems that are serious, and because of their lack of power, specifically because of their lack of power as a young person in our society, that there is probably little that they can do about it. So, young people are standing in a storm. That's what it feels like to them. They need guidance. They need reassurance that the adults in their lives are not only ethical, but that they have the capacity and competency to be able to guide them through the complications of their lives. They need us to be credible. They need to see a point in their education and to know that the adults in charge of their education can handle the inevitable conflicts and struggles that are going to happen and they're going to guide young people through the process. That's what we need. Because, by the way, when I ask teachers, that question I asked you in the beginning, who are the teachers, that you, who are the, teachers the mentors that you respected? Teachers, even really burnt out teachers, speak about, never do they speak about, this person taught me math. It's if the person taught them math, it was they helped me and believed in me and got me through. It is always about the relationship. It is always about the adult believing that you can go through and go through a hard time. And so yes, of course, academics are important, but it is constantly the relationship of the, of the adult that gives the young person faith that they can keep going. So, what if there was another way? What if there is another way to see the words dignity and respect? Because that is what leads us out.
Seeing these words makes things in a different way, makes them more powerful. So we can rebuild our village. And I'm gonna share with you some of the ways that I think that we are working on to be able to repair and rebuild the village in terms of young people's relationships with their parents, with their teachers, with administrators, and with their overall communities. So there are action steps that we can do. And I'm gonna share with you some of those tools. So we have to start by getting really, really clear about some words. And those words are happiness, respect, and dignity. So happiness is not just about avoiding conflict. One of the things that sometimes parents say when you ask them, what do you want for your child? And some parents will say, I just want my child to be happy. What in the world do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Do you actually mean that you want your child to be able to get through life without any conflict? Because that's impossible. And if you believe that, then you're setting your child up for being incompetent in handling any kind of conflict. So that would decidedly make them unhappy. So what does happiness mean? The way I define happiness is this. That you have a sense of purpose. That you have curiosity. That you have a hope of success. That you have meaningful social connection and that you have a place to process and find peace. Those are the things that make us happy. Conflict happens, things are gonna go down, things get messy. If we have those things, we can get through. And that actually is a way for schools to think about how to get young people engaged, how to make school come alive for them. So that's the first thing, is what is the definition of happiness that's actually substantive? The second is how we talk about dignity and respect. So respect means, in Latin, respectus, to look back at. You are looking at how someone has behaved, how they have behaved, what they have achieved. Respect has always meant that it is to be earned. Always. Respect is to be earned. In contrast, dignity comes from the Latin word of dignitas, which means to be worthy. You just get it. Dignity is a given. Now, the world might try and strip away people's dignity, but dignity is something that cannot be taken away from you. Respect must be earned. But these words are so incredibly conceptual, and we don't often give enough seriousness to the word dignity, and we conflate the word respect to mean both. And what young people get really angry about is when, for example, they go to a teacher and they say, this child's being really mean to me. And what a, 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 excuse me, a teacher will often say is, for like little ones, like 12 and, and under, is you don't have to be friends with them, but you have to treat them with respect. But if you think about what I've been saying about how young people define respect, which means to obey, no matter how you are treated, what that teacher, without meaning to do so, is coming across as if they're saying to that child, you don't have to be friends, but you have to accept the things that are happening to you. If this other child keeps doing mean things to you, you have to keep accepting it, because you have to obey. That's the way they're hearing it. Instead, if you say, you don't have to be friends with that child, but you do have to treat them with dignity, that's different because it means that it feels like you're not letting that other child get away with the bad behavior. And that's what happens with all of us. When we are in a situation where we have to show respect to someone that we actually don't respect, it makes us angry and we disengage. So these words are incredibly conceptual. And remember, I work with young people from the ages of like 10 to 18, and then I work with teachers. So how do we get them to, to think about this in more concrete ways? So we ask anybody that works with us, teachers, administrators, students, young people, to draw these words. And drawing makes them come alive. So I'm gonna show you last Wednesday, when I was working with a group of students, I asked them to draw dignity and respect. I'm gonna show you an example of one of them. So here we have Adolfo, who is 11, drawing who he respects, which is somebody who stops racism and makes peace. 
For dignity, Adolfo drew a tree and a young person saying, one day. The tree has worth just for who it is, for what it is. One day, it might grow to be a bigger tree, but it has worth right the way it is. And so to be able to separate these concepts for young people and for teachers is incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. Now, what else can we do? Because you know that these words need to be different in your heart. Now, I'll give you an example also that's really hard for teachers. So when I show this to teachers and the way we got here is because when working with teachers, it felt like when we said respect has to be earned, teachers felt like we were taking away their power. And they got really upset. And so what's important about that is, is that when an adult says, but that's not the way I was raised, I was raised to respect my elders, to give them the space to be able to say, there is a difference between respect and dignity. And respect is earned, dignity is a given, but if we walk this path with me, your students, your young people will join you in creating an environment of dignity. Teachers change. But I want to be able to respect teachers' experiences because it can be so hard. So what does this look like beyond the pictures that we have for students? What does this look like when we're working with teachers? What does this look like in education? So I'm going to give you two examples. My two examples are this. Here are two fifth grade boys. They're, they're 10 years old. And we asked them what was teasing. We just gave them the whole the concept of teasing. But they got to come up with the words. They got to come up with playful teasing. And you'll notice, if you can see it, that the third bullet says yo mama jokes. Because yo mama jokes can be playful teasing but they got to come up with a definition of it. We didn't tell them what it was. Now I'm gonna show you what we did for the overall class. So they got to separate all the different kinds of teasing. And so you'll notice that in playful teasing, you're so dumb, check mark means that other kids related to it, reciting a song, saying you're ugly, roasting, which is in the United States going after people, like being, being um, putting them down and people like go after each other. Broken ankles also is something you do where you're tripping, you're not breaking ankles. If anyone's wondering if people are breaking ankles, that's not what this is. Breaking ankles, and the teacher who did this actually was worried because she thought, oh my gosh, like they're actually breaking ankles, um, is when you're playing basketball and you move a certain direction and the other person stumbles. That's called breaking ankles. Um, annoying teasing is starting to get to be bullying. Shut up your ugly looking self, looking at you, wait. Yo mama jokes are an annoying, they are an annoying category. Malicious, malicious is also yo mama jokes and you're so dumb. Necking is when you get hit up in the head. So let's be clear, young people, if they are going to engage in this kind of work, have to be able to name it because they are the subject matter experts. We can provide the values and the framing and the credibility and the maturity of being there with them. We can do that. But they, if we are going to talk to young people about their social and emotional learning, they have to be recognized as the subject matter experts that they actually are. They have to decide, what does dignity look like to me? What does respect look like to me? And then we go from there. Then we have young people that are engaged. If we don't, we have young people, believe me, that wherever I go in the world, whenever we start talking about kindness and empathy and anything like that, they think to themselves, this is a very well-meaning person, person and this has nothing to do with my life. It's too simplistic and it's not relating to me. I don't see the point. And young people desperately need to see the point of their education and all of the different ways that they are being taught. So. This is how we use it in education, like in the classroom. Now, what also can we do to be able to make it come alive for young people? So the next thing I'm going to show you is this. What do we do when a young person comes to us and they're complaining about the treatment of another person? 
from another person. I already said that instead of saying you don't have to be friends with them, but you do have to treat them with dignity instead of respect. But the thing that teachers often say, well-meaning teachers, well-meaning adults in our village, is when a young person comes up to them and says, this is happening to me, I am being hurt by somebody, the adults say something like, just ignore it. Be the better person. Don't let them see that it bothers you. By the time a young person goes to an adult and tells them something, they have been thinking about talking to that adult for a very long time. So when we say just ignore it, they've already been ignoring it and it hasn't been working. So instead of saying that, because that's not being respectful of their experiences, we say instead something like, I'm so sorry that happened. Thank you for, for trusting me to tell me. And together, we're going to work this out. It is simple. It is clear. And it is recognizing the leap of faith that the young person has to take to be able to talk to an adult. Next, what if you get a child and an adult, by the way, because we have these experiences at work in all different kinds of ways of our village, where you, in a, you are in a position of authority. You have said to people, if you have a problem, come talk to me. Don't wait. But somebody has waited. You're an administrator at a school, and you've been saying these things to teachers and to parents and to children, and a parent waited. A child waited. And it can be so understandable to be so frustrated that out of your mouth comes a very understandable response when you first hear about this problem, which is, why did you wait so long to tell me? I could have done something about this before. It is an understandable thing to say. It is, however, disrespectful to the experience of that person because that person must have had a good reason for why they didn't say anything to you. And that is a moment when people in positions of authority say, why did you wait so long? That is a moment of disconnect. But we can make it better. So instead of saying that, you can say, you must have had a really good reason to not tell me before. When you are ready, I would really like to know what that is. Because if you can figure out, if you're in this position, if you can figure out what the reason was that the child didn't come talk to you, you can figure out how to solve the problem. Now, it is possible, because we are human beings, that you would say something like, why didn't you tell me before? So you make a mistake. It happens. I make a mistake all the time with kids. I made a mistake a month ago with a group of eighth grade boys, 14-year-old boys, that I walked away and thought, oh, that wasn't right. Because basically what I did was I was being sarcastic. And I said something just sort of just on the road, just on that edge of not good sarcasm. Sarcasm doesn't have a lot of place in education anyway. But I, I just, you know, right there I was on the edge and I walked away and I had this feeling in my stomach of like, that wasn't right. I wasn't being the adult that I should have been. So what do you do? The way to repair the village is to make genuine apologies and for ethical leaders to show what apologies look like. So what do you say? So when I saw, for example, those boys a little while later, it was about a week later, and I saw them and I actually saw them like walking on the sidewalk and I was in my car, so I stopped my car. So this was a little weird, right? Like I put my window down and I backed up. So I was like, oh, they're going to think I'm crazy. Because they, of course, don't remember. If you're outside of school, they don't know who you are. So I backed my car up and I was like, hi. And they were like, who is that crazy lady? And I said, hi, Ms. Wiseman. Remember, I teach you social emotional learning. Remember that? They're like, oh, yeah. They came over and I was like, hey, I just want to say something really quick. That thing I said to you last week, that was wrong. Now, did the boys admit that they knew exactly what I was saying in that moment? No, they looked at me like, right? I said, you know, I just want to say that thing that I did was wrong. I'm sorry. And their whole faces changed and said, hey, no problem. That's cool. And then they left. That interaction took about 20 seconds. I did not have to have a very long conversation with them about restorative justice, as important as that is. I didn't have to have any of those things. That was a moment of repair, where an adult in a position of authority says, you know, I did something wrong, I thought about it, I need to claim it. And so then we went from a moment of disrepair and disconnection to repair. And of course, the next time I saw those kids in that class, of course, the the, what happened? 
is they came up to me and said hi. It totally changes the dynamic. So unfortunately, what we have sometimes in schools is that if the person in a position of authority makes a mistake, we don't think we can say anything about it because it shows weakness. It actually shows strength. And the last thing that I want to highlight for you all is about parents. So in our villages, there are two things that I want to highlight for parents. Number one, I believe that everybody is your child. You don't have the right to be screaming at children because when we scream, they don't listen to us anyway, right? They really don't. But when our children do something wrong, when they say, when they, for example, are teasing somebody or using words that are putting somebody down because of where they come from or jokes of their religion or anything like that, which by the way, wherever I go, children are doing, is that you say, you're on the playground, you're in your car, you're in your house, you say, that thing you just said, specifically what that is, not acceptable. Love you, can't say those words. You cannot use those words to put somebody down. If they want to continue talking about it, you can talk to them about it. But we actually have to set values. We must set values based on people's worth and dignity. And when those things are being taken away, we speak, because that is what adults do. We cannot be surprised if children don't know how to speak in moments of injustice when we do not do it ourselves. Likewise, if you are a parent or a person in your community and you see or hear other people talking about a child badly, gossiping about a child, in today's world, it is about a child who maybe did something inappropriate online. Maybe they did even something sexually inappropriate online. And you go to your, your favorite social media platform and you hear people talking, they're talking about it, and they're talking about it just anonymously that you actually know who you're talking about, but they haven't actually identified that person. Or you go out after the school into the playground and they're talking, into the parking lot and they're talking about it. Or on the bleachers of a game, or in the hallways of a school, or you're at dinner with somebody and they start talking badly about a child. Instead of being silent, because silence is not a protest. Let's be clear. Silence is not a protest. Silence is condoning the bad words and the lack of dignity around you. It is supporting the stripping of dignity of those children and that family to be silent. So instead, what do you say? What you say is, that must have been really hard for that family, for that child. What can we do to support them? Because in that moment, you are saying to the adults in that room, we got to stop, and this matters, and gossip matters, and degrading people and denigrating people matters. As an adult, I am going to speak to this, and I'm going to do it in a way that holds all of us accountable. So what can we do to support them? These are the moments that seem small, but in our world now, and in our villages, that's what we need to be doing, because that's what's meaningful. To be silent in these moments looks like we are condoning the behavior. So I want you to come back to me to my seventh grade class, because this was about a month ago, and a young man raised his hand and said, why do you keep coming back when we are so obnoxious? And my, I swear, and really, they were like more, they were, they were less horrible than they had been in the, in, the, in the very beginning. They were like moderately terrible. And so he raises his hand and he says this. And my answer to him was, hey, I'm a grown-up. I'm keeping coming back here. That's my job. And we're going to do this together. And yeah, you're being obnoxious. You're being less obnoxious. But like, yeah, it's hard. But that's my job, is to keep coming back. So I'm, sort of, I'm asking the same thing of you. So I'm asking you not to give up on your villages. And I understand that there might be times that you want to. I understand that this can be overwhelming, but I really believe that this disrespect in the world can be changed. So respect has to be earned. Dignity is absolutely not negotiable. Everyone has worth. And all of us can do our part to rebuild the villages. And beyond these villages, we must empower children with the skills to be able to speak to people in positions of power that when they mock and humiliate and abuse their power, 
that they don't stand behind their position to get away with it. We must, must have our children have the skills to be able to face that. That is probably the most important thing that we are all facing, all facing, wherever we come from, is to give children those skills. And we can do so by doing it in our villages in these very small moments, because that is how it builds. So I'm asking yourself to have challenging, courageous conversations about dignity and respect. Because unless you do it, unless you do it, it's not going to happen. But the thing that is so incredible to me, and the thing that gives me the most hope, is that if we acknowledge our messiness, if we acknowledge the inconsistencies that young people deal with, if we appreciate young people's experiences with dignity and respect, if we do all of that, then what happens is young people are right there with us. And then what's amazing and really does give me hope is that we have really truly earned their respect in the right way. And young people are more than willing to come to us and work with us to rebuild. So thank you, and I really look forward to your questions in our conversation. So, Rosalind, thank you so much. That gives us a lot of food for thought. And I was actually, um, it brought to my mind a visit to a school that I had just yesterday as part of a project we're doing here at the RSA that's looking at how you can reduce exclusions, uh, permanent expulsions of pupils from schools. And the particular school that we visited believed that um, actually the main route to success was building really good relationships between students and teachers. And that, that seems completely commonsensical. Um, but their approach to doing it, I think, was really fascinating. So, first thing Monday morning, uh, teachers sit in a circle with eight to ten students and uh, all of the students share what they did over the course of the weekend and the teacher has a chance to pinpoint if there's anything that's gone wrong over the weekend that they might sort of need to intervene on before they go to class but also the teacher shared with the pupils what they'd done on a weekend and I, I asked why they did that and they said they saw it was really important to, to get to know each other and that that requires teachers to be open but I know that many people working in the teaching profession would think well actually there's a dividing line between the, the private and the working life and in order to maintain my sense of professionalism, I, I need to hold that straight and hold that firm. And I wondered uh, how, you, how you think about those issues when you're talking to teachers sure. and, and there's those difficult uh, decisions to make about, about that kind of professionalism versus building really strong relationships. Yes. So you would not talk about the hangover that you got on Saturday night. Um, or the party that you went to or whatever, anything like that, right? But you would talk about, for example, um, you know, what I learned over the weekend or what did I do? I went with my kids to a, to a football game. I went and did this. I went and took care of my mom. Um, those are things that are appropriate. Uh, or you could say, for example, you would not talk about, I'm going through a divorce right now, right? I don't think that's appropriate. But you could say, when, if they're talking about it or if it's appropriate or whatever, is, um, and if it comes up appropriately, it's like, these are the things that when I was your age, I experienced. Wow, I had a horrible, I had a terrible crush on somebody. Oh my goodness, it was so painful, right? And so those are the things that we need to be able to share, but also be able to draw boundaries, not just for young people, but also for teachers. Um, and particularly, I would say that I work with a lot of teachers who, have not, who are young teachers, new to the profession, who um, particularly are challenged by that. Um, and so they feel like they want to establish rapport with their students, so they want to be friends. And that, of course, does not work. So being able to establish your authority, but also be a human being, is important right, is really important. Or it's also a level of generalities, like, wow, my kids really had a hard, gave me a hard time this weekend, but you don't go into the specifics of what that is. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, you talked about some of the ways in which uh, life is changing for young people. Um, and I noticed that you'd written an op-ed in the Huffington Post last week, um, which was about a group of uh, students from Covington Catholic High School who'd attended um, the first Indigenous Peoples March in Washington yes. um, and, and hadn't necessarily behaved in a way that, that gave the other marchers dignity. Yes. And I wondered if you think there are broader kind of social, political trends, the polarisation that we're seeing, yes. um, that are having an impact on the ways that young people behave um, yeah. and, and the ways that they might act towards other people. Sure. So, um, 
So this was a, as you all know, um, the United States obviously is going through a lot of struggles with the concepts of dignity and respect. And in this particular case, these young men were on a field trip, a school-sponsored field trip, and they, um, half of them approximately went to um, this group and they were wearing um, red MAGA Make America Great hats. And um, my point in the op-ed was that to have um, the supervising adults, there were four people that were antagonizing these boys. But if, you're, if there are educators in the room, I don't even know why anybody goes on a trip with a group of teenagers. I mean, my goodness, the amount of, like, of trouble that it usually happens on these trips, it's just in, it's incredibly challenging under the best of circumstances. So to have a group of young men who are going because they want to participate in, a, um, in the pro-life march in the United States, and they are wearing a hat that signifies to many people in the United States a lack of respect to life, um, is really ignorant, insensitive, and can really incite a lot of reaction, negative reaction from people. And so my point was is that the adults who are supervising those children, at the very least, their responsibility to those children is to educate them about what they are doing and to be respectful and considerate about, as I said in the very beginning, their right to freedom of expression needs to be balanced against the right of other people to be in a public space and not feel threatened. And for some people in, my, in, the, in the United States, it is absolutely mysterious to them why that hat creates so much fear. And for many people in my country, that is obvious. And so we are trying, that thing of your right to express yourself balanced against the consideration of the community in the village is essential. And it is essential that educators understand that and communicate that to young people. My belief is that it is irresponsible to not talk to young people about that and to allow them then to be in a public space where they are, where the tendency would be, or you could not be surprised, that people would get really reactive. So um, I'm also was really glad to see, by the way, that the bishop, the Catholic bishop of Lexington, Kentucky, wrote an op-ed that was very much in support of that that just came out a couple of days ago. Great. Yeah, I mean, it, these are really challenging conversations to have with young people, but they important are. ones all the same. And, and really, I, I do get, for young people, one of the things that's so wonderful about working with young people is their passion to express themselves and their right and their feelings of advocacy and wanting to express themselves. And so our job is to be able to show them and guide, guide them, navigate through the, through the process of your rights do not take away your responsibilities to other people. And that is one of our fundamental responsibilities to young people, is to listen to them and to frame those kinds of conversations in ways that are meaningful to them. I mean, it completely chimes with work that we've been doing here at the RSA on young people's voice and uh, a really strong sense young people have a lot to say, uh, a lot uh, of yes. things they want to positively change in the world, but they, they just need support to do that. Um, I'm aware that I've, I've slightly taken over the Q&A, but um, I think it's time to hand over to the audience. So if you have any questions, um, please can you just raise your hand? And what I'll try to do is I'll try to take a couple of questions at a time so as many people as possible get a chance to speak. When you take the mic, uh, we're just roving with a couple if you could just say your name and then state your question really clearly. Um, so I think I saw one hand up. Um, any other questions? Um, one at the back and one here. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then we're going to take the gentleman over on this side. My name's Yona Hayward. Um, I'm just wondering, um, understanding the pressures that are on, uh, on teachers, and I'm not using this as an excuse, but I'm wondering the impact of the pressures that are in schools, both on students with the curriculum and on teachers in teaching that curriculum. Yeah. And what you're talking about seems to take time, mm. and children need time, and we seem to have lacked that... Um, aspect of the job and giving that time. Yes. What's your I, Yeah. So the question of time and preparation, um, it's like we, it's amazing because we know the answers. 
we do know the answers that relationships are what makes young people try hard and develop the grit that we like to talk about in education to keep trying. And yet we keep pushing them and pushing them and teachers often feel the pressure to keep going even if the students, for example, have not absorbed everything that they should in the lesson, I've got to keep going because I have to teach to the test. Um, so here's, here's the thing that is mind boggling to me and is a challenge that I think we all need to face, which is it is truly inexcusable to me that teaching colleges do not emphasize to teach and train teachers about social dynamics, group dynamics, how to be an ethical leader in the classroom, how to be able to read social dynamics, how to be able to understand why, some, why one young person will feel comfortable speaking for others and the other children might completely disagree but not say anything about it. When, one of the thing that they don't teach in colleges, teaching colleges, amazes me, which is that you never see the first hit. Basically, as a teacher, you always see the retaliation. And so if you see the second hit, but you don't understand the dynamics that happened before it, or even understand that that's a possibility, you will get the second child who is retaliating, who probably doesn't have as much social skills as the first one, you will get that child in trouble. And you will not hold accountable the other children that contributed to the problem. And then what happens? What happens is the teacher looks like they are the one in the entire classroom that knows the least about what is going on in the classroom. So the power of the socially able perpetrator is completely reinforced in these moments. That that is not taught in teaching colleges is inexcusable. So we can be subject matter experts, and that is important, but if we cannot teach, we are useless. So when I talk to teachers about these things and I develop these lesson plans, one of the things that I do is we talk very intensely with them about what is actually the tension of what is, okay, what is the amount of time to prepare for a lesson on these things and also how does it fit in the classroom. And so we have developed, and, and this is only because we are in relationship with teachers where they were actually tell us the truth about their frustrations. And so what we believe is that it is a reasonable expectation in a planning session per week is that we have one person who is doing social emotional learning who is the hub, the center, that takes about a half an hour for them to prepare the lesson plan for the week and that the teacher who is, who is responsible for the direct implementation needs about 10 to 15 minutes per week to be able to implement a lesson plan around social emotional learning if they have the training beforehand. The training is not 400 hours. We can get people, we know from social science, that about 14 hours is a sweet spot where teachers start to believe in themselves to be able to do this work. So you get 14 hours and then 15 minutes to prepare a lesson plan. And then you get teachers who are feeling more confident to be able to do this work. Makes perfect sense. I think the, the dynamic that, that you're pointing a finger at is a really difficult one in the UK education system at the moment, and I don't know if it's the same in the States, I'd be interested to know, is. but we're having problems with recruiting and retaining teachers, mm. and uh, what a lot of schools are having to do under budgetary pressures sure. uh, is, is get rid of support staff who would have traditionally existed. So you've got fewer teachers with fewer support staff to, to help them navigate some of these more difficult uh, kind of pieces of work that they might need to do with young people. Right. Um, and so, so the pressure, I think, is feeling, is feeling really acute here at the moment. And, yeah. and to ask teachers to do another thing sometimes, uh, that it just feels too hard. So, and so there's two answers to that quickly, which is that if you can show teachers, they have to be trained by somebody who they believe in. They can't have somebody training them who hasn't been in a classroom for 20 years. They don't, that is not gonna fly with teachers, and I agree with that. You need people who actually know down, you know, concretely how to work in a classroom, what that looks like. Second, is that we need to have, we need to be able to acknowledge that we are doing this to teachers and that we are setting them up for failure. We have growth mindset, right? We love growth mindset for children, love it. We do not apply that to adults. We don't apply that to teachers. You're not good at social dynamics in children yet, right? So we need to apply the same thing because for teachers we are constantly evaluating them and evaluating them and then not having the same attitude that we have towards young people and then we're, we're surprised that they are afraid or have a bad attitude because they just got caught making a mistake. So the we need to be able to acknowledge that for teachers and then we've got to be super clear, which is that if we take away those support systems, then we are making young people much more vulnerable to not only not being able to survive, being able to thrive, but to literally being able to, th to survive. That is, the that is the actual thing that we need to admit to ourselves, is what are we willing to invest in our children? We've got to be honest. If we're going to cut that support staff, 
then we are willing to let children die. I'm aware that this gentleman's been very patiently awaiting to ask his question. Uh, sorry, in the third row from the back. I have a little story to tell, which I think is relevant. I used to do a lot of supply teaching. The best school I ever went to was the school where all the children knew the teachers by their first names. I then had an opportunity later to be a director of a summer school where I had children from four different countries learning English. Use that. Told all the staff, the cleaners, the cooks, everyone, the first names. Your uncle and auntie. There's no barriers. Mm. That works. Because if you don't put the barrier there in the first place, you don't have to overcome it. Just my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think the children call me by the, the, that I'm teaching, usually call me by my first name. I think it's, um, it's a good, it's a, it's a good, um, I don't, there are people who feel strongly about the other way because we need authority and we need sort of lines of demarcation. What I think is that you can have a teacher who is called by their first name that children really do respect, and we, we can have uh, teachers who have very little boundaries or are too informal, and children lose respect. So I think it's a good starting place. I think it needs to be backed up by effective behavior. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I'm just going to take one final question because we're running out of time. Um, I see one in the second row from the back towards the middle. Yes, thank you. Hi, uh, my name's Sophie Spitz. Uh, I have a question about dress codes. Um, about I was thinking, dress codes? Yeah, dress codes. Okay. Oh, it's the last question, of course. It's always the last question that's like <laughs> big. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, about, so where's the line between, with dress codes, body autonomy, and also um, respect and wearing appropriate clothing, then also the fact that we tend to like sexualize the female body. So where is the line between, let's say, someone wearing short shorts, that not being appropriate, but at the same time recognizing that maybe we only don't see that as appropriate because she, like female legs are just seen as sexual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I could talk about this for so long. <laughs> so I have to choose what I'm going to say, and it's very hard. Um, okay. I think. Systemically, I think this is actually a place where young people can have voice, but not necessarily, not necessarily vote. Uh, and I'm not saying 100%, I'm just saying that I think that we need to have more voice for young people in the creation of dress code. Um, because what they can do specifically is we can have rules about like how wide a strap is or how long your skirt is. But what actually really matters in some ways more is how the adults communicate those standards to young people that engage or disengage, are seen as respectful or disrespectful. So what I, wanna, what I think that's really important is to have young people on a, like a dress code committee that is with a faculty person or with a dean. And what you want to hear from, the young from young people is what are the things specifically, you don't have to say who's saying it, but what are the specific things that a teacher is saying or the administrator is saying that you are having a hard time with? And it becomes a battle of wills, right? What are the specific phrases that set you off and you can't listen to that person anymore? Well, how would you want to be spoken to um, instead? Because here's the thing I know about dress codes. When I talk to a child about dress code, I do not shame them in a group of children. What are you wearing? Do you realize how you're coming across today? is never, ever, the child's never going to internalize, I guess, the values you're trying to impart. If you're walking down the hallway and you see a girl or you see a boy that are out of dress code, and you say, hey, can you just come here and talk to me for a second? And so they're away from their peers. And, they, and you say, hey, honey, sweetheart, you know, like, whether I like the dress code or not, we have rules here. And you know you're out of dress code. And you are so much, say the girl's wearing something super, super short. Okay. You are so much more than, you're a beautiful young woman, but you are so much more than what you're wearing. And also, what is, I want to know what's, what you are proud of for yourself and how what you're wearing is a reflection of that. Now, the adult and the child could have different, like I could have disagreements and I've had disagreements with the older girls particularly about that, but the conversation is what's important. And for the adult to say to a young woman and to a young man today, you are more than what you wear. Like, I understand that it's an extension or a reflection of where you are, and that's important. But I want to know more about you. And I want people to see more about you. And that's important to me. Then that's a whole different level of a conversation, and it's treating the child with dignity. And you live in an institution that has rules that, whether you like them or not, you have to conform to them because you've agreed to be a member of this community. You could hate them. 
You can advocate to change them. You can become an expert on legal issues and rights for young people and dress code, but you are conforming to this in this community now. And so that is a different way to have the conversation than you're at a dress code, do you see what you're looking at? You know, put your fingers down, are you, you know, do you pass the test? That raises it to a different level. Those are the kinds of conversations I want young people to have with adults, and I want adults listening to young people so that the right message is being communicated. It definitely feels like we could talk about these issues oh, all day, but I'm issue. afraid we really have run out That's of time. That's one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites. Um, thank you so much for your great questions and for being here today. Um, if you still have questions that you're burning to ask uh, Rosalind, then she's going to be sticking around and she's going to be signing books uh, and chatting to you uh, in the, the corner of the room here. So, so do stick around for a chat. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the work that the RSA is doing on education at the moment, we'd really encourage you to, to look on our website uh, and find out more um, and uh, to, to mill about in the new coffee house space that we have downstairs, which is an excellent place to, to meet people, uh, whether working at the RSA or fellows of the RSA, who are doing really interesting work on education at the moment. Um, without further ado, I'd like you to join me in thanking Rosalind Wiseman. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.